You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Jeff Todd and everyone's favorite doctor, Dr. Trish. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon, Dr. Trish. Well, today we have a, uh, we're going to cover a topic that is uh, really popular amongst our uh, patients. It's something that we get a, a lot of questions asked about, and it's uh, something, a topic that you happen to know a lot about. And, um, and you have actually done quite a bit of work recently in the field of medical marijuana. Well, work in that I've tried to educate patients and physicians about the medical marijuana laws of Missouri. No research in medical marijuana. No personal experience with medical marijuana. It is a topic that a lot of patients ask about, and obviously with the law passing in Missouri, where we are located uh, recently, um, everybody has a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of confusion. There is, uh, it's, a, it's a polarizing topic, I would say. People seem to be, uh, have strong feelings one way or another. And it really is um, polarizing, but if you look nationally, the statistics are that most Americans... You know, 87% believe that states should have the ability to um, pass medical marijuana laws. And physicians in general, just under 70%, actually agree with that as well. And yet it's still very polarizing. If you look back at the history, it's it, it really the history of marijuana is filled with a lot of propaganda, some really false information. It starts off like, you know... A gajillion years ago, we have written history on the use of cannabis in in um, society, uh, and then medical use brought into Western society even later. And actual acceptance of cannabis in the United States in the late eighteen hundred or mid eighteen hundreds through the mid nineteen hundreds. So that the history of cannabis is really, really kind of interesting. I know you you know a little bit about it. You should share with our audience some of the story of marijuana. Virginia actually had a law in the 1600s that said you must plant it because it was uh, such an important cash crop. So uh, I find it interesting that we went from, hey, here's this uh, important agricultural resource to now uh, fast forward. Uh, There's a lot of interesting reading that you can read about why Marijuana's got the name that it does um, or the stigma that it has. Um, But... uh, Nonetheless, I think the main turning point was probably in 1930s. And it's interesting if you look at anything that is influenced um, from a monetary standpoint, there's competition. And I think that's what happened to marijuana. And and the hemp, um, or the use of hemp in the 1900s, and the competition with some very influential families at the time. What you're implying is that business and competition in the almighty dollar may have influenced the villainization of marijuana and not scientific fact. Say it isn't so. Yes, I'm implying that. This seems very out of the ordinary for our, our country and society. Certainly would never see that in current time. 
Luckily, we've evolved beyond that. So an interesting thing in the history of marijuana that I think should get brought up, really, because it, it still to this day seems to um, be somewhat of the the hitching post to a lot of people is that the very famous Reefer Madness I know, movie. we need to watch that. We do need to watch it. It is... It is scandalous. It sounds scandalous. Scandalous, to say the least. I think the movie art, uh, the movie poster for Reefer Madness reads, women cry for it, men die for it. Reefer Madness. I know in marijuana, that term, you alluded to this, but you should share the, it was marijuana, marijuana. According to the the great uh, encyclopedia in the sky, Wikipedia, they have over 1,200 names for marijuana. The DEA currently recognizes almost 100 different names. You're not going to go through all of them. I am. In alphabetical order, starting with the uh, numerical names, 420. No, I will, I will spare you all 1,200 slang names, but um, I found out really quick when researching that I'm actually not very hip because I only know of about 15 of the names on this list. That might be about seven more than I know. We like to use cannabis. It sounds more scientific. Very clinical. I like it. Now, really what we're interested in or what we talk a lot about is the medical use of cannabis and medical marijuana. And I, I guess why is it that we're hearing so much about medical marijuana now? Certainly there is one component because it, it just passed in in Missouri, but what is it that we think or that scientists think cannabis may be able to help with? So people, anybody, will list any condition as they have throughout history. The state of Missouri has recognized qualifying conditions, certain conditions that may be helped or improved with use of cannabis from a medicinal standpoint. And we'll cover we'll cover all 10 of those, I think, um, in a minute. But before, I, I think we need to start with some basics about marijuana or cannabis. So tell the listeners that there's two basic types. And I don't, I'm not so sure everybody's familiar with the two basic types of marijuana uh, that are currently available. So you're probably referring to indica and sativa. And those terms are now passe. So they don't really apply. Indica used to be the, you know, the marijuana plant components that made you high, the higher THC plant. And sativa was the more invigorating plant, had less THC. But now that there's so many different um, combinations of the cannabis plant out there, those two terms really don't apply anymore. Now the focus in medical marijuana or where we get interested is really on the the nuts and bolts of the plant itself and what happen the chemicals that make up the plant when you get it into your body. And a lot of that focus is on the cannabinoids. Yes, or cannabinoid. You can say it either way. There's another chemicals that come out of the, the marijuana plant called the Terpenes. So the terpenes are the volatile oils that give the the um, cannabis plant certain smells. But the cannabinoids are the component of the plant that we're interested in medically because we think those are the chemicals that will help conditions in the body. Is that correct? 
to some extent, the whole plant is extremely interesting because there are so so many cannabinoids or cannabinoids in the plant that may have a physical effect on the human body. But when you combined those different cannabinoids together or included terpenes or flavonoids, which are also part of the plant, you could get a totally different effect. And that combination of effects from different parts of the plant used, in, used together is called entourage. What it means is that you can use a small portion of the plant and get a much greater effect by combining it with other parts of the plant rather than just separating out one cannabinoid and using that. So 100% THC may not be as effective as THC combined with CBD. So the two big uh, components that most people may be familiar with are CBD. The second would be THC. And traditionally, THC is the part that makes you, quote, high. And then CBD is the part that helps with conditions. Does that seem like a fair generalization? No, I would say THC has um, a significant medical component to the cannabinoid itself, CBD as well. Um, but there are, you know, at least 86 other cannabinoids that have been isolated or identified that may have a little activity um, in changing health and disease or may have a lot. It just We just need more science. And there are probably a fair amount more. So it, it's not just the one chemical. It's not just the, the CBD itself. It's not the THC. It's the combination of those two items, as well as the terpenes that you mix in. And other cannabinoids that can have an effect on a disease or a symptom. So how do these work in our body? I think I think that's another interesting thing because I, I know that there's a system in the body that processes these chemicals. The endocannabinoid system. Almost all living organisms have the endocannabinoid system in them as part of their makeup. And it influences body homeostasis. So it's the effect of the chemicals that come out of um, cannabis and its effect on the endocannabinoid system that is what imparts its action, correct? Correct. So when we talk about CBD and we talk about THC, one of the things that we talk a lot about with patients or patients have a lot of interest in is CBD. You see it, it's everywhere. It's in the gas station. At the spa. You're buying it from your brother's company down the street at Quick Trip. There's now CBD infused ice cream for sale. CBD for your pets. It's unbelievable. So in context of what you're saying with CBD and the relationship to THC and the other um, items in cannabis, is this why CBD that you purchase might not be as effective as, quote, medical cannabis? That may be one reason. The other reason is there's not any regulation of CBD. So you may be buying CBD in a store in Missouri and getting zero CBD, cannabidiol. You also may be getting more CBD than what is listed on the packaging. And in some unfortunate cases, particularly if you drug test at work, your CBD may contain THC, which is illegal if above 0.3%. So to clarify that, to be just a CBD product, you have to the product has to contain 0.3% or less of THC. But it's not regulated, so nobody really knows. You don't know what you're getting. There, you don't know what kind of contaminants are in there. Now, there are some good companies in Missouri. There's some really good um, uh, companies who 
test their product and list that product and any other um, characteristics of their either tincture or pill on the bottle or bottle for patients to to review before they use it. Um, but in general, there's no regulatory oversight of CBD sold in Missouri. It seems like the best advice is buyer beware. Pay attention to where you're purchasing it. Um, try to stick to some bigger brands. Or brands that are indicating the product has been tested and they list um, those test results or have that those test results available, that there are no pesticides, no contaminants, the actual quantity of CBD tested in the product itself. Then you'll have a better idea if you're getting something that's actually legitimate. In your clinical practice, have you seen CBD to be very effective? I'll be um, truly honest. CBD by itself for my pain practice has very limited effectiveness. There may be some improvement in anxiety, so as a relaxant, and maybe a little bit of assistance in sleep. But in general, CBD by itself, I haven't found to be extremely helpful. Piggybacking on that question, I would ask you then, have you seen much um, improvement or benefits of patients who are already legally um, taking medical cannabis? Have you seen benefits from that in your pain practice? The answer is definitely yes. I have patients who have um, their medical marijuana card in Illinois, and they have demonstrated significant improvement in certain symptoms with CBD, but almost always that CBD is combined with THC. Maybe a very low level of THC, but that combination of CBD with THC is much more effective or CBD with some of the other cannabinoids. So what do the studies show? Do we have studies that show any um, significant conditions where we can, we have studies that show that it improves or helps? There are a lot of studies out there, which is contrary to what a lot of physicians believe, but there is data and some of it pretty good or substantial data to suggest that medical marijuana or medical cannabis can be useful in treating pain disorders, treating spasticity in patients who have MS, and treating wasting disorders or, or anorexia, which means decrease in appetite or nausea and vomiting related to um, some immune deficiency disorders or chemotherapy use. This year, did we not see the first medical cannabis drug FDA approved? So organic CBD product used in two childhood seizure disorders. So yes, that was approved. But we've had non-organic or synthetic THC products on the market for years that are Schedule Three and Schedule Four drugs that have not really been um, as effective as as desired for nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy or for anorexia or decreased appetite related to whatever condition. Um, one of those, for example, is Marinol. There are a lot of side effects with it, and um, even though those are 100% THC synthetic medications, they just haven't proven to be as, as helpful. And that's the interesting part about the plant, that the other parts, the other components may mitigate those bad side effects of cannabis when they're used together and you can get by with a lot less of the psychoactive component and still get the effects that you're, you desire in treating whatever, whatever condition. And, and you alluded to the fact that a lot of doctors um, and medical providers claim there's really no good data out there. Um, 
But but you said there is actually a fair amount of data out there. It's just not maybe in the form of data that we are used to. Yeah. If you look on clinicaltrials.gov, you can type in marijuana and just type in the qualifying conditions Missouri uses. Um, Missouri users can have medical cannabis available for, and you'll find at least 64 clinical studies right now. Why is it that clinicians still kind of hold to that mantra of, well, there's, we don't have any data. Is it fear? I think there, that's a legitimate concern. The data that we have has been subject to a lot of regulatory oversight and cannabis products available for research and the populations in which to treat it. So um, the cannabis plant is interesting in that it can have a different effect in different people with the same condition. In addition, it can have a different effect in the same person taken at a different time or in a different formulation. So when you're putting together a good research study, you need to account for all those differences so that you can determine an effective, um, determine efficacy at all. And so that's where the research is is a little bit uh, lagging when you compare it to other um, pharmaceutical agents out there. So if you're thinking of it just as a drug or as a medicine, there are some limitations. Some of that can be overcome by changing the scheduling of marijuana. Schedule 1 drugs are those um, deemed to have no medicinal value and a high rate of addiction or misuse. And so marijuana currently is in that category with LSD and heroin. So to study it, takes almost an act of God to put together a research project project and then to get quality product as a whole a whole different concept. But if you could reschedule marijuana to a different level, schedule two even, then that would open um, doors to better research and better population studies on the effectiveness of cannabis in certain conditions. When you look at research um, and the scheduling of marijuana, because it is scheduled as a schedule one, it is, um, it's a very protected drug in terms of you can't just say, Hey, I want to study this. And in fact, you know, I don't think that the public generally knows that there's actually only one facility in the United States. Currently there's some changes that are taking place, but the university of Mississippi for the last like 35 years is the only place that can legally grow marijuana that can be used in a federally funded research project in order to go to the university of mississippi and get uh, marijuana for a study you have to go through the dea and the dea has to approve it and the fda and your state and local governmental societies and an irb the amount of um, hoops that you have to to jump through to get product from the university of mississippi for study is crazy and then add to that, it's kind of apples and oranges. What they're growing in Mississippi may not be what you have available in Missouri as, um, as far as the plan is concerned. When you look into the University of Mississippi system and, and how they run that operation, not only is the plant they're growing possibly different than what's being grown in your dispensaries in Colorado, Washington, and what we will potentially have here in Missouri, but it also is some of the stuff that they're studying is quite old. So I read 
articles that said that, you know, the specimens that they send out for studies might be frozen or freeze-dried and might be 10 years old in some aspects. And so then does that change studies as well? Of course it does. The potency certainly would have an effect when you consider any medicinal product. So you're you're not comparing apples to oranges or apples to apples. You're comparing apples to oranges. I did read that the DEA recently, oh, well, approximately three years ago, opened up that market to competition. But as of three years later, they had not offered any of those contracts to anybody else. And they actually just got sued over it. So hopefully new laboratories are going to get access. You shared that with me. And I found that really interesting because in my head, I just imagined that we were finally moving forward and no, we're still there. Good old federal bureaucracy has effectively killed that. So in your opinion, what patient makes a good candidate to try medical marijuana? Jeff, great question. Um, our pa- patient population is a pain population, and that's the number one reason medical marijuana is used across each of the states that now have approved it, of which there are 33. Um And so the best candidate we have in our practice is a patient who, for whatever reason, is suffering from a chronic pain condition and has had to um, resort to recurring injections or interventional procedures or opioids to manage their pain complaints. When a patient meets the standards um, of one of the 10 qualifying conditions and wants to go down the road of medical marijuana. What is that process? What are the steps? So if it's done correctly and there are people who are pressing the appropriate way to treat patients, we can treat them like they're just a few dollars extra in my back pocket and I certify them because they fall into one of these categories, maybe clearly or maybe kind of. If you treat them properly and you think of medical marijuana as a, a really a potential health benefit um, to mitigate some of the side effects of other medicines or to improve health of your patients, then the normal approach is your patient comes in, you have a conversation with them about the potential uses of cannabis. After that point, if they're interested in pursuing um, cannabis use for themselves, the physician will certify them. In the state of Missouri, only a physician who's an MD or DO with an active Missouri license can certify a patient. After seeing the patient, reviewing their medical records, the physician is asked to do a physical exam. Um, if they examine the patient, they would review their, their medical history and medicines because there are some interactions that can be detrimental if used with um, if used with cannabis or may be affected by the use of cannabis. Then they have to certify that they've done certain things, and then the physician must um, attest to what condition the patient is being certified for. A physician doesn't actually prescribe medical cannabis, correct? Yeah, it's an Amendment 14 in the Constitution of Missouri, and a physician is, is protected from civil or criminal liabilities because they're not actually prescribing medical marijuana. They're only certifying that a patient has a qualifying condition that was determined in the state law 
to be appropriate for medical marijuana use. The process for patients is once you're certified and you submit your forms to the state. Yeah, they can download those forms from the Department of Health and Senior Services. They fill out their part of it. They get the physician certification. Within 30 days, they have to submit all that paperwork back to the department with a $25 fee. Then the state's been really good. They've responded um, typically within one to two weeks for most of my patients. Although you'll get, you'll hear back from the state whether or not you actually do qualify and you'll get your medical marijuana certification card. Then what? This is the question that comes up quite a bit. Then what? So where do you go from there? Well, right now, you don't get to go anywhere. At the end of December, the licenses for manufacturing and cultivation facilities So the cultivation facilities grow the plant, the manufacturing facilities actually put the plant into a usable product. Then they give that product then goes to a dispensary and then patients are, will go to the dispensary to get medical marijuana. So essentially we're looking at 2020 before you can actually go to a dispensary and obtain medical marijuana. That is true. So the state has until the end of December, 2019 to act on those licensing applications. You and I have had this discussion several times, and I find it one of the great ironies. Seeds are federally illegal. To transfer. To to transfer across state lines. And since marijuana is not a native plant to the state of Missouri, theoretically, all of these cultivation centers can't get seeds, correct? You're asking me a question I don't know the answer to there is no answer to it there is no answer it's a magic bean homing pigeons i think bees so once a patient sees a physician obtains certification what are things that patients need to think about um maybe prior to getting certified um because this is in some ways part of your permanent record whatever that means, right? Right. So um, recently, one of our local television stations showed physicians who certified large groups of patients and gave them a psychiatric diagnosis that may or may not be in place. So you're talking groups of patients like 10 10 to 15 or more people out at one time. Right. Who were looking to be certified for medical marijuana in the state of Missouri. Interestingly enough, all of those patients were willingly willing to accept the diagnosis that this physician wrote on a piece of paper that qualified them for medical marijuana, Missouri. The ramifications of that to me were like, hello, you um, may be looking for a job which would be restricted by that diagnosis. The condition they, they used in, in this one instance was a psychiatric anxiety-based condition, correct? That psychiatric condition was um, from that news, news um, piece. Elaborate what that means. That means insurance may be difficult for you to obtain in the future, medical insurance. It means that you might not be able to take certain jobs in the future, it did allow you to get a $25 medical marijuana card. So I'm not sure that that was thought through by either the physician who did these group assessment and felt comfortable doing that in a way that I um, certainly had professional distaste for. You and I have, have talked about this as well, and I think that there is some concern for every piece of paper that you and I as medical professionals sign our name to is those papers live on for forever. 
you and I take care of patients of all different types of things, but some of our patients have litigated cases and a note that you create for whatever situation can take a life of its own down the road. And now here's a form that says you have this condition that's been not just submitted to your your doctor or whatever provider certifies you, but you, it's next step. It's been submitted to the state. It's submitted to the state. And we're not even talking about um, the potential implications for custody battles or divorce situations or um, in general, any certification you have for medical marijuana may affect your ability to purchase a firearm. Firearms are uh, controlled and regulated by the federal government, the sale of firearms. And currently, um, the thought process is that under the current laws, if you are certified for medical marijuana, then you cannot purchase a firearm. Correct. And can you imagine that you've been certified for medical marijuana and you have a psychiatric condition? If you ever desired to purchase a firearm, you double whammied on that one. Yeah, I, I know that it's come, it comes up with some of our patients who in, enjoy the outdoors quite a bit. They're quite concerned about that. They are. We have um, a, a fair number of uh, patients who like to hunt. And that concern comes up. So what do we tell our patients? You know, if you've purchased a firearm, I don't imagine that they're going to research all those certifications and go back and check um, to see if you own a firearm. But they certainly could. So I think it's fair to say, at least moving forward, if you get a certification for medical marijuana, you shouldn't expect to be able to ever purchase a firearm legally in the state of Missouri. There's longstanding ramifications that could affect you that we're not even aware of currently, number one, which is the scariest part. But two, there, there are some that we know about right now that, that could affect you and things that you find important. Or, and so it, it seems to me the most important thing when looking for someone to certify you is that you maybe don't search just on price. These are cash-based uh, appointments because the insurance companies do not uh, cover any of the, uh, the evaluation process, correct? That is correct. And so um, in Missouri right now, patients who are looking to be certified are paying between $150 to $250 to see a physician for certification. And some of those physicians are spending little to no time looking at the patient, completing an appropriate assessment, um, or educating the patient on the potential benefits and harms of cannabis the other part of it is you really would like to have a conversation with your treating physician if you're using it for a medical reason. You want to have some feedback. You want to be able to explain any side effects that you might have from cannabis, how it might be interacting with any of your other medications or the benefits or the lack of benefits with cannabis so that your physician can use that information with other cannabis users. I know one of the things that you do quite a bit is that you educate uh, physicians here in the St. Louis area and across the state about cannabis. And your take on it, I, I find it real interesting because your take is not a pro or a con. It's more of here it is and here's what you need to know. That's right. People are burying their heads in the sand if they're against it. And I find that so interesting and entertaining to some degree because it's the law 
And if you're really a physician and you're interested in treating and caring for your patient, you should be able to have a conversation with them. And you don't, I don't, I'm not endorsing cannabis for patients in general. Uh, I do believe it to be helpful and I'm okay, particularly with uh, chronic opioid use and using cannabis in place of opioids for a, a safety and risk factor standpoint. But more importantly, I think it's important for my patients to have somebody that they can talk to about cannabis and to have some sort of education with other physicians um, so that they can have those conversations with patients and they don't need to hear it from me. They can, there are plenty of opportunities. I just want to make it easy for other physicians to at least get an idea of what um, Article 14 says, what patients might come to physicians to um, discuss uh, regarding cannabis and at least how the plant might work. Maybe have an open mind. There might be some effect. And I will tell you, my patients in Illinois who've been using cannabis for pain, for spasticity, for tremors, for nausea, really do have some benefit. I've been able to um, decrease and in a few cases eliminate opioids in total for patients who are using cannabis. Sleep is a significant improvement in patients who use medical marijuana. And that we know just in working with our patients, if they don't sleep well, their pain is usually worse. The interesting thing is in St. Louis, for instance, um, most of the major hospital organizations control most of the primary cares these days. There's not as many independent primary cares. And some of the major hospitals have really put strict regulations, if you will, on what providers can do involving medical cannabis, correct? That is correct. So some of these patients that have only seen their primary care see their primary care the most. They're being forced out of their comfort networks because physicians aren't allowed to have conversations with them about cannabis. And I think in general, this is the head in, this, in the sand effect the hospital systems and other physicians are doing. Because at some point, and probably sooner rather than later, marijuana is going to be rescheduled. It's not always going to be federally restricted. And what are these hospital systems going to do? What are these physicians, how are they going to approach patients who may have already left their systems because they're not getting the care they're looking for? They're not getting the direction they need. Yeah, it comes up quite a bit in the clinic um, just in daily discussion that patients will ask questions about it and they'll say, my doctor that's part of X system can't talk to me about it just can't talk to me about it. Right. And I think some of that's a protective shield some physicians use. I mentioned earlier the number of physicians that support medical marijuana was just under 70%. However, the number of physicians that are willing to certify patients in states that have medical marijuana laws is much, much lower than that. So it's it's okay. It's kind of the, it's all right to do, but I'm not going to help you. And I'm 100% okay with that, but I still think it's imperative that physicians have conversations with their patients and be able to converse with them about cannabis because whether they like, they like it or not, those patients will go out and get certified and will be taking their heart medicines, their Parkinson's medicines, their, they may be on chemotherapy, and they will be using chemo or, uh, cannabis with those, those other um, 
agents, those other medicines. And so if you really are interested in the health and well-being of your patients, and if you use your patient as your North Star, then you should know and you should be able to have those conversations. Open and honest communication between your patient and the healthcare provider does tend to lend itself to better care all around. I think the takeaway points would be that um, medical cannabis can be effective for some conditions. Correct. Maybe not all conditions as some proponents may express. And that it really is important who you choose to do your certification. Your certification is not just some $25 card. Because you need to do that again in a year. And um, as I share with physicians when I give the introductory introductory cannabis talk for Missouri physicians, most of your patients are probably going to know a little bit more than you unless you're an active user. I can tell you my patients know far more about the effects of cannabis. They probably know more than the six or seven words that describe cannabis than I do. Blue sage. Blue sage. I didn't know that one. Blonde. Bobo bush. Boo boo bama. Yeah. Those are the bees we haven't even got. So, yes, our our patients are going to know a lot. I think a good certifying physician will at least have a conversation uh, about cannabis, but they don't have to in the state of Missouri. By law, it's not required, but they do have to participate in the, the rigors of that very simple application process, which means I did an exam, I identified qualifying conditions by doing that exam and reviewing medical records, and I reviewed the risk factors of cannabis use with this patient or with this person. You personally perform cannabis certifications, correct? I do. I don't advertise that um, and that it's not a big part about of what we do, but it is an adjunctive treatment to pain. And I do recognize the benefits of cannabis or the, the potential benefits of cannabis for our patient population. And if a patient wanted to come see you to discuss cannabis certification, where where might they go? Well, they if they come into our office, then we discuss that with them. I like patients. Um, it's been interesting after uh, Missouri passed the law, I got is a fair number of new patients who showed up who'd had a lot of treatment. And I think they wanted to talk about cannabis, but they never mentioned that when they came into the office. So if they come to see me or come to see you, please share that you, you want some information or if they're interested in being certified, um, just share that straight up with the docs in town that are open to medical marijuana. I actually had that exact appointment this afternoon. A patient came in and, um, it was obviously something they wanted to talk about, but they were testing the waters to see what would happen if they asked. And, um, and finally I picked up on it and I asked the patient, I go, do you have questions about this? And they said, well, yes, I actually, I asked my primary, but they weren't really allowed to tell me anything. That's sad to me. Oh. 20 minutes of conversation of beating around the bush, dipping a toe in that could have just been 
Hey. I know, but can you imagine having a new diabetes medicine and going into your doctor and they're like, I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. Or, hey, I just tried this new supplement online and, oh, yeah, I heard about that, but I'm not allowed to talk to you about that. It just is sad to me. It's not fair to these patients. They have questions and... And, uh, and, and they're suffering. I mean, they're not... In general, at least in our patient population, I'm sure there are people out there who are trying to get certified for nefarious reasons, but... Yeah, you raise a good point. When patients have questions about medical conditions, and and the diabetes example is really good, if there was a new diabetes drug, patients wouldn't feel so nervous to bring that up. And um, yet, we try new medications on patients all the time. They come to market, we're we're told these studies tell us how to, what they do. We, or my, maybe off-label use, meaning they haven't been approved by the FDA for treating that certain condition, but we know in pain it may be helpful. So if you explain that off-label. Yeah, I think that's, we could do a whole episode on off-label use because I don't think patients realize that a lot of the drugs that they're taking may have never really even been studied in or approved for what they're taking it for. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about cannabis uh, that, that, that I do think would make people feel a little bit better is that if you have side effects when using cannabis, we have the ability in Missouri, we will have the ability to track, track it all the way back to its seed, essentially. Yes, we'll be able to do that. You can track the genetics of the plant all the way back to the seed. So if there's a problem with cannabis obtained in a dispensary in a certain part of the state, you can track it all the way back to the cultivation facility where the plant was grown. I mean, so in practical purposes, it's identical to traditional pharmaceuticals where we can track back to the pill, to the lot, to the pharmacy, to the manufacturing. So as far as the safety component, as far as uh, regular medication, no, it's still different because there's no correct dosing for whatever medical treatment. And that's that's an interesting point, too, that I think we should clarify, um, is that since it's not, quote, prescribed, there is no dosing. Um, however, there are people that are knowledgeable on certain um, dosing aspects or uh, methods of uh, cons- consumption, correct? Yes. And I think this is the role of why the dispensaries are going to be so important, correct? This was a question that came up um, at a talk I gave last night. I think it'll be really important for good dispensaries to have well-educated patient care providers. You don't want to walk into a dispensary with a terminal illness and then meet up with somebody who looks like they just used half the product in the dispensary. It's, it takes away from that medical component. Now, there are certain ways for people, again, to use marijuana in a less than um, medical way. But you would expect that the dispensaries will be able to educate the patients on the side effects of cannabis and know some of those interactions or concerns with other medications the patient may be taking if patients go to those dispensaries that don't have that sort of process in place, I would ask that they, at least my patient population, you have the ability to go somewhere else. This is a consumer-driven market, and those dispensaries that do it right will succeed, and those who do it wrong 
will not. I appreciate uh, all the knowledge, Dr. Herford. You are an expert in the field of medical cannabis. <laughs> no, I'm the pot doc, the heroin doc, as my, my kids would laugh because I know just enough. Don't be afraid to talk to your doctor. And if you can't talk to your doctor that you're treating with, find a doctor who you can talk to about the pros and cons and whether or not medical cannabis is right for you because it's definitely not right for everybody. And it may not work for every medical condition that we think it might work for, but it could work for you. A new segment Uh that we want to try. We? Or I want to try. Oh, gosh. This is called getting hammered. Oh, boy. What is getting hammered? I mean, I know what getting hammered is in in lingo for the youth. We are going to attempt it with all of our guests. And since you are not only co-host today, but you are also the, the guest, five questions. You have not seen them. And the point is to answer them honestly and quickly. This is not college interest exam. I don't want you to think about it for 30 minutes. And we will do this with all our guests moving forward. The questions may change. Um, So here we go. Question number one. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Adam Levine's wife and obvious. Question number two. On a scale of one to ten, how cool are you? Seven. Wow. Not Anywhere close to what I was gonna guess. <laughs> what would you What would you guess <laughs> for? Yeah, less than Less than five. But <laughs> question number three: If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? Uh, fire, and food. Two good choices. Two good choices. Very boring, but good choices. <laughs> question number four: If you were a superhero, what would your powers be? I would understand every language and speak every language. My God. These are the worst answers of all time. Not super speed, not super strength. I'm already fast. I'm already strong. Not super strong and not super fast. But strong enough and fast enough. How about the power how about the power to heal, doctor? How about to heal anything with your touch? Oh, that would have been a good answer. Yeah. Hey. I'm, Let's do that one again. No. <laughs> no, your answer stands. You picked the ability to understand all languages. And speak all languages. I can barely speak English. So the superhero universe was opened up. You could have any power known to man, and you picked. I just want to understand other languages. I'm getting ready to pick shoot fire out of my fingertips. (laughs) You could have had a superpower. Instead, you've asked for Rosetta Stone. (laughs) All right, question number five. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? In the United States of America. Warm, coastal, but definitely here. Strong choice. I was looking for Festus. <laughs> the, the correct answer was Festus. Eureka. All right, Dr. Herford, you survived the first edition of Getting Hammered. Maybe the first oh, first edition on this podcast, yes. That's correct. No. <laughs> Thank you all for listening again. Um, we look forward to sharing our next podcast. What do we have coming up, Jeff? In the works, we have an uh, interesting podcast with uh, one of our friends, uh, physical therapist Julie Bokerman, who is a specialist 
not only as a physical therapist, but she also is an avid runner. She's a crazy runner. Crazy runner. Um, she might be faster than me. She's certainly crazier than me. When it comes to running, Julie Bokerman will be joining us to talk about running and running injuries, and uh, that'll be on an upcoming uh, episode. Until then, thank you everyone for joining Sore Sessions. This is Jeff Todd and Dr. Trish. Till next time. Thank you.